Awesome. So we're to rock up, was it Haley? I don't know if any of you other guys caught that. Is there any other connect groups we're going to rock up to? Nice. The vernacular, I love it. Awesome. Here we are. I hope everyone's settling in to the new year with the children, getting back into your routines. I know, well, if you don't have any kids, you're getting in routines with, but majority of the people here are getting into the routines and settling in. It was a beautiful day. It's a beautiful day today, but it's a little colder, you know. We're getting ready for fall and launching in. And last week, I was trying to share a bit of vision around, in a macro sense, of, of what God has for us as individuals, but as collectives, as, as a part of a local church, and that your calling in God is intertwined with the people around you in your local church, that we're interdependent, that we rely on each other, essentially God in each other, the gifts that God is giving each one, we rely on that, and that God has got a great plan for us and got great purpose for us. And we're going to start in, uh, today on into a book called Ephesians. It's a very familiar book to many people here. And it's a book that just is so rich. It's a bit like a zip file. Can you still do zip files? Sure. So when you drop it into your computer, it just expands. It's like it's so expansive. It's only six chapters, but you're like, whoa, this is chocolate cake. This is rich stuff. You know when you're hungry and you get that cheesecake, you're like, oh, I want a big piece. And you're like, you just get into it. This is too rich. This is really rich. I can't eat this too quick. And now, so we're going to trust God and what he has for us in this book. And unlike, I was talking to my wife about, you know, the context around Ephesians, and, and it's, I like historical context. I can't help it. I love the history around the, in the scriptures, and, and it just brings a richness to it. But apparently not everyone does. So I'm going to try and be succinct in, in, in creating context to this book, as this is more of an introduction into uh, the, what Paul was writing into, the, the state of the church, how the start was, church was formed, just to give us some handles to see it. It may not be that different from our own environment. I think that's helpful when you hear the text from 2,000 years ago. Wow, this is really relevant to today. So let's just open a prayer. Thank you, Lord. We honor the name of the Lord Jesus Christ here today. We ask you for revelation. We ask you to open your word to us. We ask you to speak forth, Lord, into each heart. We look to eat today, Lord. We just humble ourselves before you. Open our eyes, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're going to get started just giving you a bit of a, the, the, the time period around in which Paul is speaking into this church of Ephesus. It's around AD 55 to AD 65 is what's really relevant to us. And the area here is what's known as Asia in the time of Paul. This is, of course, if you look at the map, just so you know, you see, you see Crete there in the middle. Of, that's a, an island. If you look at the right-hand side of Crete and allow your eyes to go up, you will see Ephesus. A lot of the other maps had weird trademark uh, things on them, so forgive me if this looks a bit confusing. But it gives you a sense of there's Italy, you know, there's the various areas, Macedonia, and of course you've got Ephesus. And as I said, this is modern-day Turkey. Very large city, very influential city. It's a port city. And it's quite interesting, the, the Romans actually had to dredge the harbor constantly because of the silting. 
And in fact, to this day, Ephesus is not on the water. It's not a port anymore. So the silting obviously took over. But because it's a port city, it had lots of wealth. Lots of things coming and going. In fact, a major trade route from the east and the north centered in on Ephesus. As, as they would bring um, goods to, to port and goods to the market. It also boasted a very large library, a very important library that incidentally had a fire. And you can look into that. There's a lot of information on YouTube to, to enrich you around this city at this time. It had a massive amphitheater, which is, that's pretty impressive in our today, in today's standard. Now, there's ranging from 25 to 50,000 people it could hold, but that is a going concern right there. That did not just get built overnight, but there's clearly money to be had here. It's also well known for a temple to Artemis. You may have heard of Diana. Artemis is the Greek goddess. And Diana, the counterpart, is the Roman. The length of this particular temple was one and a half football fields. American football. To South Africans, I don't know if, if you know what that is, but one and a half, and it's, it's, over, it's well over the width of a football field. Massive, massive. Um, it's interesting that today, this is all that's left of it. And I do suspect that one day it, gets fall, it falls over in the wind and they put it back up so no one can see it. So I'm not sure if it's always stood like that. But uh, this is what remains. The Goths, I guess, came in at, at a later period and went medieval on it, ripped it to shreds. But it was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. And apparently it took multiple years, and some say 100 years to build that. So that's focused. There's commitments to Artemis here. It's not a passing fad, Artemis. She is the central theme in the religious sense of this particular city. And, of course, here she is in all her glory. Pretty freaky. It's a scary-looking lady, but they, uh, she's, uh, she's central. She's um, a deity of uh, fertility, multiplication. Uh, she had a grove that was uh, people in the grove, the trees that go there, they would sometimes touch them to to help with fertility, blessing, and so on. Now, it's not the only deal. In the spiritual sense, they had 14 different temples there in this one city. I mean, these guys were into it. Like, they were into it. You know, it's like Starbucks coffee shops in Vancouver or coffee shops. You go, man, these guys like coffee. It's everywhere. These guys were into it. Artemis obviously was the focal point. And she is, she is the... The one they would worship, they would most likely all worship. They were called pantheists. They were into the multiple gods. And that was one of the problems that Paul often had in preaching to these particular cultures is they would just add Jesus to the multiple gods. Now, there was rampant prostitution via the Artemis temple. It was a way of engaging sex with temple prostitutes, would engage in worship. It was encouraged. Now, the city, because of this temple, drew tons of visitors. Um, and as a result, a very lucrative trade arose around the temple. All shapes and sized idols of Artemis were produced and sold to visiting pilgrims. Nothing beats a pint-sized idol for the busy idolater. When you don't have time to get to the temple, you could set it up somewhere. 
And so they were, that was big trade. As you can even see to this day around many religious organizations, and there's a lot of money to be made. I know it's not in Christendom. Sorry, that was... Nonetheless, the trade that was brought in, it's, it's like any major center in any in city, whether you would say the pyramids in Egypt and so on. This attracted so much money. Now, besides these 14 temples in the Temple of Artemis, there was two temples to the emperor. That was an interesting thing with Rome, and it was a dilemma they had in conquering so many different nations. You could conquer them in the natural, but how do you conquer them in the religious sense? Now, thankfully, most of them were um, pantheists and, and, and worshipped many gods. So the emperor just added himself as to one of the gods, the supreme god. And some of them had varying degrees of pressure they would put on the people in the various cities with, with their, with their uh, temples. And in particular, there's a, there's a harsh guy, Domitian. He was a guy, an emperor at the time, that was a real Draconian emperor, likened unto Nero. And he, this is in Ephesus, his temple. And he required real submission to him and honoring to him as one of the gods. And in fact, even going into the marketplace, you would have to grab a bit of, uh, a, a bit of incense and throw it into a fire in honor to him as you went into the marketplace. So I think when you get the idea that Ephesus was a pretty pagan religious place, all levels in some way they were engaged in this. Sexual promiscuity was rampant. There was very loose. The people did what sort of seemed what was right in their eyes as it were. And this is the environment with which Paul is stepping into. This is the environment with which this church that he is writing to is living in. Now, Paul steps down in Acts chapter 19, and it's it's our first insight into this church of Ephesus. And in Acts 19, he goes and tries to find disciples of Jesus, as was often what he would do when he would go into a city. He would locate these disciples. Now, Paul stayed over two years in this city and in this region. And he preached to everyone that heard, both Greek and Jew. The word spread quickly throughout this region. He moved in such power. This is, you remember the charismatics when they get the, the handkerchiefs up? Who's got the handkerchiefs? Going to pray for the handkerchiefs? And then you're supposed to take the handkerchiefs and spread them out? That comes from Acts 19. Paul, this is what happened. Paul would pray for handkerchiefs. They would go with the handkerchiefs. People would get healed. Demons would come out of people. There's some power encounters going on here in this city. And you can see why when you look at the context. It's like they went into the heart of the enemy and established something. And as a result, it be- things became s- to spread. Now, if you remember the seven sons of Sceva, do you remember ever hearing about that in Sunday school? Maybe it wouldn't be in Sunday school. These were Jewish exorcist brothers who tried to cast out demons because they saw what was going on with Paul in his ministry. It's like, man, he's having an impact. He was on Instagram. He had followers. It was everywhere. And so they tried to cast out a demon. 
And he said, in the, in G, in the, in the, and basically, in Jesus whom Paul preaches, come out. And of course, the demons attacked him. Beat them. They actually ran out of the house naked. And this is right where we pick up. Just to see the impact. Now, the reason I'm, I'm focusing on this Acts 19 is just to see the impact that Paul had in this region. This, this, what was going on, this became known to all both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus. The fear fell upon them all in the name of the Lord Jesus being magnified. Many of also who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing the practices. Lisa mentioned this when she spoke about on the doors in the house. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. They counted up the price of them and found out 50 pieces of silver so that the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing in that context. Mightily. Amazing. I love the, 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 the impact right away when you know God is moving. I don't know if you ever heard the Hebrides revival. You guys heard of the Hebrides revival? Duncan Campbell. Go on uh, YouTube, punch in Hebrides Revival, Duncan Campbell. It's an hour long. Blow your mind. Well, one of the things about the presence of God, when you know God is present, people start to repent. And only repent, they, they be converted. They bring the, the, these things, no matter what the cost, and they are turning from their sin. And you see this in this ministry that Paul has. Further down, it says, about that time, there, occurrence, no, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. So now they're starting to really impact. You're going to see the money involved with the worship of Artemis. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Art, Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know what our prosperity depends on. You know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see in here that not only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours will fall into disrepute, of course, it's not, that's kind of a secondary, he's saying, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless. And that she whom all Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. Things are heating up. People, there's so many people getting converted to Christ that it's affecting the, the, the silversmiths who are making these idols to Artemis. They actually notice it in their business. Now, I'm sure they don't have spreadsheets and I'm sure they're not calculating each day. So it must have had real impact. I'm not talking 10%. We're talking there was impact. It's interesting. I know in the Hebrews revival, it said that when God started to move in such a way, the pubs actually closed because there was no business. It's a similar kind of thing. When God begins to move and there's a repentance, a deep repentance, there is a conversion and there is a turning. Now, when they heard this, they were filled with rage. They began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with confusion, and they rushed in one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius, Articus, 
Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. Macedonia. So you remember that, that um, amphitheater we saw there? They're running into that, into that theater. Imagine the scene. This is no small thing. Now, Paul was rushed out. Paul got away, and uh, he's, he's out of harm's way. But he does, he does not have time to give farewells to the elders and to the leadership, to anyone. And if you do read in Acts chapter 20, it's, a, it's an amazing uh, passage of Scripture and Paul's exhortation as he calls the elders from Miletus to come down and meet him. And it could, because he's got a real bond with these guys. I mean, he's been there over two years. And they walk over 100 kilometers to go meet him. And he says to them, this is the last time we'll meet each other face to face. It's a moving moving picture. And uh, Paul does use Timothy. He does send Timothy to them. You will hear him going to the church of Ephesus. He does speak about Ephesus in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Some dudes are doing some strange things. He's saying to Timothy, correct them for that. There's some strange doctrine seeping in, even into a church well-established by Paul. It's still not, it's still, it is still susceptible to these things. But what a way to start a church. I mean, I said to St. Delisa, this is like revival. And she said, well, no, they were, they were never alive. So you're right. This is like resurrection. This is not revival. This is resurrection. These people were never alive. God moving in the midst of the stronghold of Satan. And you will see, you will see what I love about this. Paul makes very little mention until Ephesians chapter 6 on the enemy. He does not highlight the enemy. He highlights what Christ has done. He highlights what God is doing. He highlights the call on their lives. Even if they're being persecuted, there's very little mention of these things. Now, Paul is probably the wrong guy to get sympathy from on, on persecution. But nonetheless, he, he, uh, he continues to forge ahead. And even in this, this particular book of Ephesians, which is written while he was in prison, uh, but around AD 60, he, he continues to exhort them in the truths of the gospel. In fact, it's very similar to Colossians. Love Colossians. It has about similar, about 78 verses that are almost the same in Colossians. And, but the theme of, of Ephesians is really the revelation of what Christ has done and his revelation uh, to his body, the church. And that's what we're going to go into, and that's what we desire to, to really I guess, dig up and marinate in. I thought about it, I was praying about it. I was like, well, what's the desire? What desire does Paul have to come from this letter? You know, if you never, it's amazing how you can have a, a very famous book and, and people will rip it apart and they'll tell you what the author meant. But the best information is, the author themselves telling you what they meant, what they desire, what they want for you. And it's, I feel, I'm going to draw it out of first, the chapter, I'm going to jump into chapter 1, verse 15, and Paul says this. Ever since I heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you, and I pray for you constantly. Paul has heard about this church. This church is known to be a very solid church, particularly in doctrine. And you know this because actually in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus writes a letter to this church. And Jesus Jesus commends this church that they don't even give in to the, 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 
the false doctrines around the Nicolaitan, which are people who separated the body from the spirit. And they got weird Gnostics. He said, you guys stood against them. The only challenge they had later on that I can see here in scriptures is their hearts grew cold and they left their first love. So it's an amazing thing. You can have all the right doctrine. You can live in such a way. And, and we think we've ticked the box, but where's your heart at? Because that's what Jesus points out to them. He says to return to their first love. But nonetheless, Paul spent over two years there. The doctrine was solid. He had really drilled into their foundations the truth. But he's not done yet. Pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. This is a desire Paul has. Remember, he's encountered in Acts 19, he encountered followers of Jesus that had never heard of the Holy Spirit. Remember? Go read it. Acts chapter 19, verse 1. He goes, he met them. They were John's disciples. They'd been baptized into John's baptism. But he, he said, we have not even heard of a Holy Spirit. And it's interesting. He correlates the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit with who they've been baptized into. Because his next question is, well, how were you then baptized? He then baptizes them into the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're baptized in the Holy Spirit. But it's knowledge. To know what the Scripture says. To grow in knowledge of God. To not be ignorant Ignorance is not always bliss. And it's Paul's desire that we would grow in the knowledge of God. That we would understand deeper things. That we would no longer circle around where we've always been, but grow in knowledge of who he is. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says that we have the Spirit of Christ so that we might know the mind of Christ. That we may know all things freely given us by God. To not just say that, that reading of the scripture, that's for some people. No, it's for everyone. We just got a TV. Our TV blew up. I don't know how they blew up. There's nothing wrong with it. Stop working. And we got this new LG one. It's not a Samsung. Well, I'm not going to read the manual. It's just not what men do. But I can fiddle with it to a point where I can get it working. You can't do that with the Christian walk. You can't. You can't go, I just know some scripture and I kind of cobble it together because you see the results in your life. A key in walking in Christ is to get to know him. A primary way, if not the primary way, is through the word of God and, of course, the revelation of the Holy Spirit. Because we should be able to answer, what is God like? We've got scripture. We know in Jesus Christ that if you've seen him, you've seen the Father. We can say all the promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus, but what are these promises? In the battle that we have in prayer, proclamation is a key part. But what is, in order to have proclamation, you have to know what the Word of God says. As much as we appreciate our opinions, and that Michael Archangel can't wait for the next blog by the greatest Christian uh, writers out there, and he's waiting up in heaven taking notes. We need to humble ourselves to the Word of God and what the Word says. A little tip for you. It may not coincide or align with the culture you're in. 
Just a little bit, you know, just on the side. It may not line up with what you think. But knowledge is critical. I love it. Who do you say that I am? He says to Peter, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Of course, that is pregnant. That's a zip file down. Boom. That's a four or five part series, right? We need knowledge. Who is the God that you serve? What has he done for you? We know that 1 Corinthians uh, uh, 15 says that this is the gospel I pronounced to you, that Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was crucified. He was buried. And he rose through. This is wonderful. But we, what happened in that lifetime? What did he do in the spiritual realm? Because it is a lot of it is revealed in the scripture. And I encourage you because it grows your faith and your foundation up. Knowledge. This is a desire Paul has. That you would grow in knowledge. I pray that your hearts would be flooded with light. Isn't that amazing? Flooded, not just shine, just flooded with light so you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he calls, his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. He desires the heart of the listeners to be engaged to understand hope we have in Christ. Do we not need hope? I think Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To evade an inheritance was undefiled and reserved for us in heaven. There's something coming for us, people. He's returning. He's coming again. We have an inheritance in heaven that we look toward. Hope within you. That when everything's going sideways, you're the crazy person like walking. Why isn't that guy ducking for cover? I remember seeing this scene, you know, of, of these guys robbing this, some chaos happening in this fast food joint on YouTube, and the guy's just sitting there eating, <laughs> and everything around was going chaotic. I was like, well, that's interesting. That idea of not freaking out, it'll end. What's the hope that you cling to? When fear comes in, hope goes. When hope is strong, founded on the Word of God, when you meditate on it, when you can memorize and proclaim it, when the challenge comes into your head to challenge you on the things that we hope for, you stand fast, you stand up, you rebuke, you proclaim because you have hope. It's not a happy feeling. It's not only hope when, when I'm just uh, feeling great and I'm having a great day. We need hope when things are going sideways. We need hope when things are going great because when things are going great, you can start to look down a bit and get into the worldly stuff. Hope, hope. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Power. Yes, it's dunamis. It's the same power that we talked about, the power from on high, the power from the Holy Spirit. His authority, power. And of course, you know, if you know Romans 8, it's the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead abides in you. He's associating the power here to raise Christ and seat him in heavenly places. 
You ever sit and contemplate, what is going on in me? When you read these scriptures, and you may not have, I'm not saying have full understanding, but you have a glimpse, you sort of look across at the glory that what Christ has done, and you think, wow, Lord, let me rise out of this quagmire. Let me have impact. Let me be useful. And that's the desire we have as a church in the season we're going into, that we would have impact that we, we would see fundamental change, not just on, a, on just a religious sense of, of, of man-made religion, but something that impacts, something that changes. And, and we can answer the call and say in Isaiah 6, when, when he sees the, the throne room of God and the glory of God, and, and he sees his own depravity and God sanctified him, and he says, and they say, who will we send? He says, here, my Lord, send me. Send me. The will must be engaged. But the will is not enough. The will must incorporate the things that Paul is pleading with his people for. It must incorporate the knowledge of who we serve. It must have the hope in there. You give a, you give a, you give a confession, you testify the hope that's within you. And the power of God. Imagine if you took any of those three out of Paul in Ephesus, what would have happened? They're all necessary. They're all part of the kingdom. I'm not limited to, to this, by the way. But I see when Paul prays, you often get to know the heart of an individual when they pray. You get to know the doctrine of people when they pray. You get to know if they're beggars before God or if they're children before God. You get to know how when they pray. Your theology comes forward in an unguarded sense. And I see from Paul here, his heart for these people. His heart for them. yes answered the call. But now, let's get to know our God. Let's continue to fan to flame the hope that we have. Let's press in and expect the power of God. Let's see what he has for us so we may testify and proclaim, not just in a sense of with words, but with strength and power and conviction. This is the call that we have and the call that this church has on them. In the midst of such depravity. And don't discount the power of the devil. There was a lot of demonic stuff that went on here. That people went to seers. They went to various fortune tellers. They went to, and there is a power, a demonic power, that has power. It's just that he is far above it. He is all authority. And he is the one that every knee will bow to. And every tongue will confess. So if you stand with me, just allow me to pray as it were, this over us. Thank you, Lord. We just honor your name. Just open your heart to the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. That the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ give each of us spiritual wisdom and insight so that we might grow in our knowledge of you, Lord. We ask for spiritual wisdom and spiritual insight. We pray that our hearts would be flooded with light so that we can understand the confident hope for us who have been called. We are your holy people who are your rich and glorious inheritance. We are your inheritance. Thank you, Lord. And I pray that we would understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe. That we would have a revelation 
that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead abides in us. That we would not be content with just minimal. Lord, I pray that you would stamp eternity in our hearts afresh. That we would look in the mirror and see you in us, as it were. That we would not define ourselves by our past. That we would embrace it's no longer I that lives, but Christ that lives. And all the potential for those who put their trust in Jesus. So Lord, I just pray, stir up a hunger in us as we try and stir up a hunger in ourselves. Captivate us, Lord. Change us. Convict us. Draw us. Mold us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be glorified in this church where men and women come from far and wide and see the good works done at the hands of the people in this room and give glory to the Father. Have your way. Defend your name through this church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.